It's Thursday, 18th of December 2014. This is HPR episode 1664 entitled Life and Times of a Geek Part 1 and is part of the series How I Found Linux. It is hosted by Dave Morris's and is about 27 minutes long. Feedback can be sent to dave.morrises at gmail.com or by leaving a comment on this episode. The summary is, I've been using computers for more than 40 years. This is part one of my story. This episode of HBR is brought to you by anhonesthost.com. Get 15% discount on all shared hosting with the offer code HPR15. That's HPR15. Better web hosting that's honest and fair at anhonesthost.com. Hello, welcome to Hacker Public Radio. My name is Dave Morris. Today I want to do a show for you entitled Life and Times of a Geek. I really liked David Whitman's idea of doing a show on his birthday, if you look at uh, HPR 1547. So I liked it so much I'm borrowing the idea. This show is being released on my 65th birthday and I thought it would be a good opportunity to tell you about my long experience with computers or more generically computational devices and I've made this part of the series How I Found Linux. Now thinking about my 65 years I realised that it might be quite a long show so I'm going to do a series of short episodes. Hopefully not too many, I don't want to bore you too much. I have wanted to do this for a while um, and up until now I was concerned seems a bit self-indulgent to be honest and it doesn't really fit with my way of doing things but people have said to me well just do it I mean people can always switch off if they don't like it anyway I hope you do find the shows interesting so I'll do a little bit of preamble I was born in the UK in a town called Uxbridge in 1949 Uh, the area that uh, Uxbridge is in is now part of Greater London and it's not very far from Heathrow Airport. When I was a kid the air in this part of the world was very heavily polluted. Everybody had coal fires, gas, domestic gas for for gas cookers and things was created by uh, processing coal Um, and uh, so this produced massive amounts of uh, pollution and um, I was there during the, the Great London Smog of 1952 Um, which caused quite a number of fatalities. I guess we escaped a bit, being a bit out of the centre. But there were other smogs thereafter. I remember walking home from school, as you did when you were about five years old in those days, um, and hardly being able to find my way across the street. Because of this pollution, my family decided to move away from the area in 1955. We went to East Anglia, on the east of of, um, England, to the city of Norwich, the county of Norfolk. There a bit more agricultural and the air was a good bit cleaner. I quite enjoyed school when I was young 
but I didn't take to secondary school after the age of 11. This was the area, this was the era of the so-called tripartite system of education where children were streamed into different types of school according to a test at age 11. I passed this and got a place at a local grammar school, um, but it was quite strict. You had to wear uniform. They had lots and lots of rules. I really didn't get on with it. Never been that good at people telling me what to do. And it took me quite a long time to to uh, get the, the exams that I needed. Of course, there were no real encounters with computational devices of any sort in those days. Schools at that level didn't have anything like that. Um, if you needed to do anything complicated in the way of uh, arithmetic, then you used log tables, logarithms, and uh, you were all expected to own a slide rule. Um, I've given you some links if you don't know what a slide rule is. There's a picture of my old one looking very battered on the uh, in the show notes. I was a bit of a geek as a child, enjoyed making things, taking stuff apart to see how it worked. I was always fascinated with science and enjoyed biology. I was always a bit of a biology geek and uh, was always watching animals or collecting them or had an ant's nest in my bedroom, I seem to recall. had plants and fungi and anything biological, sometimes to my parents' annoyance and disgust, of course. So I left school in 1967 and went to a technical college uh, to take A-levels, which are the, the advanced exams you need to get into university. This was a much better environment than being at school because it wasn't uh, hidebound with rules and uniform and stuff. It was a bit like being at university. It was a great environment. I studied botany, chemistry and zoology during that time and uh, it was only at the point I was doing this that it suddenly dawned on me that I could actually go to university and study biology. So I did what was necessary to make that happen. I, quite surprisingly, surprising to me anyway, I got marks good enough to uh, to get into university and I chose the University of Aberystwyth in mid Wales where I was going to study zoology. I liked the look of Aberystwyth out in the country by the sea and uh, it just struck me as a, as a good place to be. So I headed off to Aberystwyth in late 1969. It was then called University, of Co- University College of Wales Aberystwyth um, and it was part of the larger Federal University of Wales. It's not anymore, it's an independent place. Uh, while at school, I'd been pretty bad at mathematics, so I was imagining that I was going down a track where maths was uh, was not on the horizon very much at all, which was amazingly naive of me, and it was a bit of a shock to find that uh, we were being taught statistics as part of our biology course. So here's when computation started to uh, to come into my life. We had lab sessions where we tediously worked our way through statistical calculations like chi-square test and students' t-test. But the thing that made this so laborious was that we had to use mechanical calculators. We started with hand-cranked calculators similar to the thing called a triumphant triumphator. Never heard of this until I was writing these notes. I couldn't find a picture of the one that we had. Um, but if you look on the, the Wikipedia link, it's a, it's a strange device with a, a handle on the side for, that you crank, which uh, you, you put numbers in on the front by moving different sliders to make a multi-digit number. The multiplication is produced by turning the handle and producing successive additions. I really don't remember how, I, how it worked now. It's a long time ago, and I 
certainly can't remember how we used it for divisions, but we did. <laughs> Later on, they handed us electromechanical calculators, which is essentially the same thing, except that the, the handle turning was done by an electric motor, and the numbers were put in on a sort of primitive keyboard type thing. But uh, neither of these were very good, and of course, doing st statistics, the actual process of of crunching the numbers was pretty damn tedious uh, using that method. So it's my recollection that about year two, 1970, we were taught the concept of computers and programming. It was quite a short series of lectures. I think students in biological sciences get far more these days. Um, and we had a book which taught us the rudiments of the, the popular high-level language at the time called Algol 60. Just as an aside, this book was a so-called program text where you, you read a piece of information, thought about it, and then answered a question. And then, depending on what, what answer you gave, multiple-choice question, uh, you, you, are, you either got positive feedback, yes, this is right, or negative feedback, and sent either forward or backwards through the book to, to, um, to move on to the next thing or go back to, to relearn what you, you'd failed to understand. I find this quite a nice way of, of learning, actually. I, I enjoyed this. Um, but uh, it doesn't seem to be very popular. It died out, as far as I'm aware, anyway. Anyway, I found that programming computers was a fascinating idea, um, even exciting. <laughs> so, uh, it, uh, it was, I guess this was around the time that I, I was possibly starting to get more interested in working with computers than being a biologist. Um, so in this course, we... we uh, had access to the university computer which was an Elliott 4130. I later discovered that uh, the Elliott company was a pioneer in, at least in Europe, in producing a commercial Algol 60 compiler. I didn't know much about them or who they were or anything special about them at the time and I must admit I've not done a huge lot of research until I started putting together this uh, this talk. Um, I, I've given a few links on, on the, the subject in the show notes. There's a lot to research there. I doubt whether anybody would be interested enough to do so, but uh, it's an interesting subject, how computers were developing in the UK at this time. At the, the point that I was learning this stuff, uh, I was surprised that there weren't many books available on the subject. Um, you couldn't go to the library and find much. The I did come by a book called... A course on programming in Algol 60 later. I don't think I had it at this time. I think I got it later after I'd left Aberystwyth. Um, but I've presented it to you as a photograph of the, the cover and an example of what's inside. This is similar to the sort of stuff that I was looking at at the time. There was a formal language definition called the Revised Report on the Algol Algorithmic Language, Algol 68. Now, this is you can see it yourself in the links, it's pretty heavy going. It's not the sort of thing you'd sit down and read, especially if you're not, uh, not had much background in this type of stuff, as I didn't. It contains the, the, a method of defining computer language using so-called Bacchus Now form, um, which I actually found was quite an appealing thing once I got my head around it. Um, so I guess I was turning into a into a computer geek at that point. My hidden geek was uh, was revealing itself. So, although the whole process of writing programs was utterly fascinating, I found that Algol 60 itself was an odd odd language. The thing that really got to me was that uh, 
the language was defined in an odd way. And looking back at it from from now, I can see how weird weird it was. If you look at the example in the book, you'll see that the keywords in the language, like begin and if and then, were marked in bold bold font. It's it's they're they're not in a they're not in a um, the sort of font you'd normally see in a computer book. They're in standard font, but they've been made bold. Um, and in the report, which was written in a different way, they were underlined. So, as a very somebody with a very literal mind, I could not work out how on earth we were supposed to type this stuff in. How were we supposed to do bold stuff on a on the, on a punched card, which is the way we were preparing stuff? And how were we supposed to underline it? Uh, that really puzzled me. Obviously, we were given some sort of answer to this, but it still seemed weird that, that it was being represented in this way. I think my memory's a bit hazy here that Elliot Angle, Algol used the method of enclosing keywords in single quotes, a method called stropping, interestingly. I've given a link to that. I don't have anything in my records about this. It's probably somewhere lurking. Uh, in the house, but I haven't come across it. I'm in the process of tidying up this this house, which is full of junk. Um, and uh, but I couldn't find any any of this stuff. So certainly other versions of Algol represented the keywords in this way. The other thing I had difficulty with was the the way in which symbols like greater than or equal to or the division sign is shown in the in the texts. Um, a division integer division was represented by the thing you'd normally expect to see in a, in a in a in a textbook horizontal line with a dot above and below it but there is no such symbol there was no such symbol on the on the card punches so there was no way you could actually represent that so how were you supposed to do it um it it seemed the explanations to how this was to be done seemed very strange to me at the time the language would would be defined in a way that you couldn't actually use there must have been something that described this. I think there were there were different ways of dealing with this for the different implementations of Algol. Um, Elliot Algol did it in its own particular way, but um, it uh, I don't recall ever being shown any documentation about it. Of course, it was hard to get hold of stuff like that in those days if it wasn't in the in the department library. Anyway, the not going on about this too much. Um, Algol 60 was quite an advanced language for its time, and it it was the precursor to many of the high language high level language concepts that were that you would see later in languages such as C, Modular 2, Pascal, and so on and so forth. It's pretty much the grandfather of a lot of these things. It uses begin and end to enclose blocks of statement, which the blocks which you can also contain um, declarations of variable, and each block has its own scope. It invented this idea of scope so that the, vi- the variables in it were private to the uh, the blocks above it, but not within it, um, and they were destroyed when you exited the, the block. So this also was found in in later languages, or maybe less so. I don't think I think Algol sixty tended to do this more than some of the later. Anyway, I thought I'd tell you something a bit about the, the the university computer. This was, as I said, the Elliott 4130, which was, for its time, quite an advanced mainframe. It was uh, 
to be found in the mathematics department, I think, in, in on the upper floor. And it was in a an inner sanctum, the sort of classic thing where special people were allowed in there and they wore white coats and that type of thing. Um, us mere humans coming along to use it weren't allowed anywhere near it. It's a 24-bit computer, which seems odd by today's standards. I don't remember how big it was in terms of memory, but uh, the range could go from 32K to 128K. And this was core memory, this was ferrite cores. There's a link to, to what that is if, you, if you're not sure. In 1965, apparently, there had been a government uh, a report written which had recommended computers for UK universities, and they'd said that the Elliott range of machines were to be to be made available, funded, I guess, um, because university computing was funded funded centrally, in the, and Aberystwyth was allocated this particular one. I'm not sure when it arrived, but I think it was a fair bit, bit before I encountered it. So the way of interacting with a computer was to prepare a program, think about what you want to do, design it on a bit of paper, then write it out on a coding sheet, and you'll see what that is in one of the links that talks about the, the punch card era. Then you'd submit it to data preparation staff who would type it up into punch cards, 80 column cards. It's a picture of, I have a collection of these things in my house. It's a picture of some of them. They'd be returned to you as a card deck between two bits of cardboard to protect them, the rubber band around them. You could have your program punched onto paper tape, but you wouldn't want to do that. Um, at this stage because if you needed to change anything you have to punch the whole thing again. It was a recommended way of archiving stuff you'd already produced and, and finished off. It's a picture of a paper tape that I found when I was digging around uh, upstairs recently. I think the deck that you prepared had to have a job, so-called job control card. This is early command line business at the front and the back and this was to say whose job it was and so forth so that the um, operators could identify and the computer could also identify of course a whole bunch of uh, card decks would be stacked together and put into the hopper of a card reader and then zipped through it um, read by the by the computer and processed so the job the program would run and uh, usually produce line printed output oh it didn't have to it was the the convention then um, the 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 red um, card deck would be returned along with the the printout which you'd you'd collect and of course none of this would happen while you were waiting you you'd submit it you put it in a pigeonhole somebody would come and pick it up later on put it through the computer return it to the same pigeonhole for you to pick up so you 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 drop the stuff off wander off do something else come back later on in those days the mainframe would be unavailable from time to time for various reasons most of which we didn't didn't fully understand as 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 mere users uh, and the convention they used was they had a, a colored rectangle in in a window of the the building an out, an external window and uh, so you could see from different points around in the campus what color rectangle was there if it was green the the uh, mainframe was running but if it was red it meant it wasn't we learnt then to say the computer was down. I don't know why we did that. Down. Why down? I don't know. Uh, I do remember somebody actually causing the, the uh, Elliot to, to conk out. There was a guy ahead of me waiting to, to pick something up. 
And he was being scolded by one of the staff of the computer unit because he'd run something. I think he was a computer science student. And I think that uh, you effectively had sole access to this machine with just a very, very thin operating system around your job. And his was an assembly language program which had gone rampaging about all over the place and completely wrecked the, the operating system and just so crashed it totally, uh, which meant that they then had to go and reload it, which, I th which, as I understood at the time and have read a bit about afterwards, was not a trivial thing. Getting a machine back to a state where it would run um, card decks through it was, was a thing that would take 20 minutes back. But uh, I've not found a huge lot about this. I'm not sure anybody would be that interested if I did, but uh, just uh, just as a, a point of interest. So if your program had errors in it, <coughs> then you'd need to correct them. I mean, the classic thing would be you'd submit this, you'd get your printout back, and it would say syntax error. You'd forgotten a semicolon or something. So you'd need to correct that. Well, I don't think at that point we were given access to card punches ourselves. So the thing to do was either write out another piece of program on uh, a coding sheet and hand that in to be punched up and then insert it into the deck. Or they, Aberystwyth had this method. Never saw anybody else do this. They had, they must have had their own customized uh, punch cards produced. They had a red stripe on the bottom edge and they had an 80 column form, one line of a coding form actually printed on the front of the card. If you took the card out and wrote your correction on it and then flipped it upside down so that the red edge showed and then put it back into the deck, then the operator spotted this on the on the way in and would uh, uh, repunch that card and replace it. Um, so that was the way in which you edited your program in those. There was some sort of multi-user mode on this machine I vaguely recall. Uh, there was a room with about half a dozen um, uh, teletypes in it which which could be used for um, some form of uh, access, simultaneous access to the machine. The uh, I think it was only available to the computer science students because uh, I never got access to it. That would have been quite interesting but uh, we weren't, uh, it wasn't for the, the likes of us those days. But it, it must have been extremely basic stuff. I wonder if anybody listening has any other experience of this. It would be interesting to hear if they have any knowledge of uh, the Elliott 4130 or the Elliott range in general. So what happened then um, with with my dislike of statistics using mechanical calculators? Then, um, and I think this is what we were expected to do, although not many people did, uh, that... Uh, we would write programs to uh, to handle quite a lot of the, the stuff that we were doing. I don't think there were many people who, after the, the course, carried on using um, Algol and uh, and programming to do anything very much. But of course I, I was getting really excited about this stuff and enjoying it immensely and was uh, writing programs to, to do all the various statistical um, evaluations that we, that we were being... Uh, required to to do and um so i i built generic card decks you know one for a chi squared one for t test and so on and all you needed to do was to get the the data punched up on cards and stick them on the end of it and then submit it and there you get back an answer to your uh, your calculation without without having to do any nasty hand cranking and uh, or whatever other method of calculating this stuff. So this came to the attention of the staff in the department um, 
and uh, I was asked if I would be prepared to donate these programs to uh, to the department and uh, I think there was some sort of a um, an online library system probably on mag tape or something that uh, the the department was maintaining so I did this and obviously I had to do documentation with it I was asked to do this so I remember writing this stuff out here's how you did it and you know what you had to put in because it was all data in specific columns and this type of stuff how you signalled to the program that that was the end of the data which was not a trivial matter in those days strangely um so the documentation was then handed in, typed up by one of the departmental typists, and uh, and put in the in the uh, the annals of the department. So, so I guess I can finish by saying that uh, somewhere in the early 1970s, I was uh, contributing to a type of open source software. Uh, not not at a world level, but at least the level of the zoology department of uh, Aberystwyth University. Hope you enjoyed that. That's the end of my first summary of my uh, geeky life. Okay, bye. You've been listening to Hacker Public Radio at hackerpublicradio.org. We are a community podcast network that releases shows every weekday, Monday through Friday. Today's show, like all our shows, was contributed by an HBR listener like yourself. If you ever thought of recording a podcast, then click on our contribute link to find out how easy it really is. Hacker Public Radio was founded by the Digital Dog Pound and the Infonomicon Computer Club and is part of the binary revolution at binrev.com. If you have comments on today's show, please email the host directly, leave a comment on the website or record a follow-up episode yourself. Unless otherwise stated, today's show is released under a Creative Commons Attribution Sharealike 3.0 license.